As we continue worshiping together today, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the book of Acts. Acts, the seventh chapter, beginning with the 55th verse. Let us receive together the word of God. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. And now, friends, let us receive the sounds of our chancel choir singing, He Comes to Us, recorded on March 8th of this year. One of the things I've been so grateful for over these weeks as we have gathered in worship in this online place has been the beautiful store of music that we have, thanks to the leadership of our director of music, Stanley Thurston. So grateful for him, for our choirs, the ways that they bless us, continue to bless us in deep ways. Friends, if you're just joining us today, I wanna to make sure that you know you can connect and find ways to fully participate in our service with our worship guide and other resources found on our website. And also, if you are in need of American Sign Language, you can find that uh, link on your screen and in the comments if you're following us on a live stream today. Will you pray with me? God, send forth your spirit and touch us in all the places that we are that our hearts and minds might be open to receive what you have for us today. May my humble words and thoughts be acceptable to you, O God, for I offer myself to you in the power of the risen Christ. Amen. When I was growing up, Mother's Day included cutting pink tea roses from the bush at the corner of our garage and then affixing that to our Sunday best before we would attend church, First United Methodist Church, Sepulpa, Oklahoma, where the tradition was to wear a colorful rose to honor a mother living and a white rose to remember a mother who had died. Then we'd go out to eat, which didn't happen that often. Churches that I've served over the years observe a lot of different traditions for Mother's Day, many of them involving carnations and honoring the mothers in the congregation. These are lovely memories for me and cherished traditions for congregations all over the place. The longer I lived and grew and served, I became more and more aware, both as a woman and 
as a pastor, the extraordinarily mixed and often painful emotions that come up on this day for many. Women longing to be mothers, those whose relationship with their mother or child is broken, those whose children are suffering or have died, on it goes. Further, I've come to understand that Mother's Day didn't begin as a day to honor mothers at church. It didn't begin in the greeting card industry, but rather began with a woman named Ann Jarvis, a mother herself in Appalachia, who had children who died of diseases. She organized what she called Mother's Work Day to advocate for health and hygiene education to mitigate child mortality. And later she mobilized women in Appalachia to go into civil war camps to treat the wounded soldiers on both sides and to teach sanitation and disinfection. She called that movement Women's Friendship Day. Inspired by Ann Jarvis and deeply moved and affected by the suffering and death experienced in the Civil War, Julia Ward Howe wanted to bring an end to war and wanted to bring equality for all people, regardless of race or religion, gender or nationality. She wrote the Mother's Day Proclamation, calling mothers to leave their homes for one day a year and work for peace in their communities. In 1872, the first Mother's Peace Day was celebrated. While I certainly honor my mother and all mothers, I'm gonna ground my words today in the original spirit of Mother's Day. And the text that we heard read by Jasper today helps to do that. Stephen's story begins in a conflict in the early church in Jerusalem. Greek-speaking widows weren't receiving their fair share of the daily food distribution that was being offered by that early church community. This oversight was possibly motivated by prejudice or conflict between the Greek-speaking and the Aramaic-speaking disciples. The response was to form a ministry team of seven servant leaders to care for this social justice and direct service feeding ministry. Stephen is described as a shining light among this group. His powerful witness in the community is seen, however, as a threat to certain leaders in one or two of the Jerusalem synagogues. And they stir up a slander campaign against Stephen, accusing him of blasphemy, a charge punishable by stoning according to the Levitical law. In Acts 6.13, it's clear that the whole thing is a setup. It's a completely false accusation, but it works. And Stephen is brought before the Jerusalem council. And when he gets there, he does not mince words when asked what he has to say about the charges. He proceeds to lay out a history of Israel that identifies two Jewish groups, 
those who accept God's message and messengers, and those who reject them. The comparison that Stephen develops aligns Stephen and the church with Abraham, Joseph, the prophets, and Jesus. His accusers are aligned with the Egyptians, Joseph's brothers, the rebellious in the wilderness who disobeyed Moses, and the ancestors who killed the prophets. Now, if you read the whole sermon of Stephen before the council, you might start to feel worried about the feelings of the folks that he's calling out. It might seem overly polarized and harsh. And the truth is, sadly, that Stephen's sermon, along with so many passages of Christian scripture, has been twisted and perverted into a diatribe against the Jewish people as a whole, causing untold suffering and loss of life for our Jewish siblings over the centuries. That's never okay. What I want to highlight, however, is that in the narrative flow of the story, Stephen's sermon was simply a prophetic reminder of what Jesus had been teaching, had taught in various ways. It's a call for God's people, regardless of what their religion is, to align with God's message of love and justice as many had done throughout the ages. The facts of this case are that Stephen is unjustly accused by those who have power. He's arrested based on a lie. Then he chooses to speak out in the face of the injustice and is brutally murdered at the instigation of some religious leaders who manipulate the system to achieve their goal, ultimately with the sanction of both church, temple, and state. That doesn't happen anymore, does it? Stephen, had a mother. I don't know if she was present at her son's final sermon or outside the city where he was dragged by people with stopped ears and enraged shouts. Those who wouldn't or couldn't hear the truth or contemplate the painful history that had set the stage for this terrible moment. I don't know if Stephen's mother was there to witness that. But think for just a minute about how many mothers over the centuries have seen their children suffer indignities, violence, and often death in the wake of injustice. A disease is 
defined as a particular quality, habit, or disposition regarded as adversely affecting a person or group of people. A pandemic is a disease that spreads over an entire country, continent, or the whole world. And right now, COVID-19, that pandemic, is the reality understandably on everyone's mind. But I pray we will see that this pandemic highlights another one that has been allowed to fester and to grow for ages in our country, the pandemic of racism. A disease from which no United States citizen can socially distance ourselves. It touches and infects all of us. From the beginning, when the first nations of this land were betrayed, forcibly removed and slaughtered, to the horrific and immoral buying and selling of African siblings into slavery, to Jim Crow, to redlining, to voter suppression, and more, the racist virus has adapted and morphed, as most diseases do, in order to thrive. And if those of us who may be feeling some defensiveness rising as I name these things, allow our ears to remain open and our shouts of protest withheld long enough, perhaps we will notice who is bearing the brunt of this current suffering. It's often said that when white folks catch a cold, black folks get pneumonia. And what we see in the data right now is that our black and brown siblings are disproportionately getting sick and dying from COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention outline multiple factors that contribute to the disparity, including housing and work and health conditions. The CDC states, and I quote, health differences between racial and ethnic groups are often due to economic and social conditions that are more common among some racial and ethnic minorities than whites. In public health emergencies, these conditions can also isolate people from the resources they need to prepare for and respond to outbreaks. All of these conditions is named by the CDC, are the result of a long, painful history that has created fault lines of injustice and inequity throughout our society, from lack of access to health care, to food deserts, to disparate education and school resources, to a broken criminal justice system, to difficulty gaining access to voting, 
to economic divides and obscene inequalities in compensation between what we now call essential workers and the folks who make a phone call to make millions while they play another round of golf. Just as one data point, here in the District of Columbia, as of May the 7th, we've had 304 deaths to COVID-19. 304. 241 of those were Black siblings, Black neighbors, and 23 identified as Hispanic or Latinx. That is 264 out of 304. And that's just here. And I can hear, I can hear the voices rushing to explain this away, to defend themselves, to rationalize the reality to blame the victims. Those voices get so much play. Those voices of people who look like me. Some voices of people I hold dear. And those voices remind me of my own ongoing, often stumbling journey of waking up to my privilege as a white, educated, cisgender, employed woman who is married to a man. I know the arguments. I know them well. But I'm not going to give them air today. What I will lift up is a very basic reminder as one author frames it, of course, there are many ways of defining words and terms. Let me share this one. Racism is a form of structural oppression. The most common way that many people think about racism is to imagine a person who harbors ill will against people of color or who believes stereotypes about people of color. That's not helpful. Such discriminatory attitudes are not racism. They are prejudice and bigotry. Racism is not merely a matter of your individual feelings or beliefs but is a matter of systemic oppression. Policies, practices, images, the ways that everything in our culture teaches us overtly and subtly how to think about things, how to think about people of color, regardless of what color our skin is. The virus, you see, touches every person in the system, regardless of where you live or what you look like or what you have. I keep thinking about Stephen. 
telling the story of a nation without whitewashing it. He told the good stuff about the nation's history and he told the ways that people had done harm. And the people who felt most threatened by him and what he was saying became enraged and they stopped their ears from hearing or seeing what is real. And they worked him through the system and they got rid of him so that his words and his work wouldn't disrupt whatever it is that they felt was more precious than his life. Stephen had a mother who knew nothing was more precious than his life. And today I want to honor her. And I want to honor all mothers who know intimately how precious the lives of their children are. In particular, I want to honor today mothers of color who as women carry the added weight of misogyny and patriarchy on their backs as they navigate racism and all the complicated intersections and mutations and indignities that trail along with it, while also being asked to care or to worry more about the feelings of white people than their own feelings. On this, on this Mother's Day, 2020, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, I invite us to honor mothers who have been living through the effects of the pandemic of racism for generations. Mothers whose children suffer from diseases due to poverty, pollution, or food deserts. Mothers who fear for their children's safety every single day because of the color of their skin, mothers whose daily prayer is that their child's name will not become a hashtag. Mothers seeking asylum from abuse, seeking a better life for their children. Mothers forced to leave their children on their own while they work multiple jobs. Mothers who have to have the talk with their sons and daughters. Mothers who stay with abusers or suffer any number of other indignities in order to keep their children housed and fed. Mothers who fear for their children's safety because of the dangers in the neighborhood. Mothers who are in prison. Mothers who have to help their children unlearn internalized racism, and to learn to love their black and brown bodies. Mothers whose children have been taken from them at the border. Mothers whose lives get interrupted with the news that their child has been killed by acts of racist violence. For Mamie Till Mobley, Sabrina Fulton, Leslie McSpadden, Samaria Rice, Geneva Reed Veal, Wanda Cooper Jones, 
I especially remember Ms. Wanda today, as it was Mother's Day 26 years ago when her son, Ahmad, was born. And as I prepared for today, I was struck by how many of these women that I've just named have channeled their grief and their pain into advocacy and into education and into public service. They, like the women who instigated the first expressions of Mother's Day, are not simply letting a disease, in this case, the disease of racism and racist violence, they're not letting that continue as the normal way of things, but are rather tirelessly pressing for new practices and new policies for healing and for justice and for peace. And that is the intention of Foundry Church as well. We're not just going to flare at the outrage of another lynching. We have systematically, consistently, and much more slowly than many of us would like, been laboring to arrive at this day. When we together enter a time of self-assessment and discernment, to identify and address how our words, our practices, both conscious and unconscious, are biased towards siblings of color, may undermine our desire to be and become a truly beloved community. This work, at least our vision, is that this work will be akin to the summer of great discernment that Foundry undertook around the issue of marriage equality. In order for this effort to have lasting impact and not just be an exercise in massaging our perceived moral high ground muscles, I implore all who care about the life and the witness of Foundry and truly desire a more intentional and awake expression of beloved community, I implore you to engage this process. We're doing it now. I know we're distracted and I know there's a lot going on, but we're doing it now because in some ways we might have even more time to focus and go deeper. I implore you to engage this process even when you don't feel like it. In a moment, you'll hear from servant leader Greg Magruder to learn more about this initiative. And I want to close my words with you today by lifting one detail that may be easily overlooked in our text for today. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, as he stood before his accusers, looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, normally, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, early interpreters, including Augustine and Ambrose picked up on this detail, and Ambrose observed it this way. Jesus, he said, stood as a helpmate. He stood as if anxious to help Stephen, his athlete, in the struggle. Jesus sits as a judge of the quick and the dead, but Jesus stands as his people's advocate. As those who claim to follow Jesus, let's stand with those that Jesus stands for.
Those who, like Stephen, are the victims of injustice. Let's do our own work wherever we are. Whether you're part of Foundry or far afield, do our work so that beloved community might become more than a dream among us, strengthening us for the ongoing work to change the world for the better. Let's let the tragic loss of life wake us up and motivate us to find a new and so much better way of life together. Amen. I invite us now to receive a word from our servant leader, Greg Magruder, who is the chair of our Racial Equity and Justice Steering Committee.